0: Father, we come before you and we're probably not often enough, but we come before you and ask for your help, your wisdom, your insight, the blessing of your spirit and the teaching that he brings. Help us not to simply look at the pages and have our minds wander, but help us to look deep into your word that, Lord, it might transform us, that it might wash our minds renew us in the faith and help us to be diligent in this lord at times i know we all slack on that but help us to be consistent and we ask also lord that you would bring to remembrance the things that we need to understand and know to maintain a godly life and to act properly with those who are around us and lord give us more insight into who jesus was when he was here on earth for your word Contains that knowledge and the wisdom that only He possesses. So we thank you for your word, Lord. We ask that you would bless it. In Jesus' name. Amen. Now, backing up just a little bit, since it's been several weeks since we have been in this section of Scripture, we see that Jesus fed 5,000 people with only five loaves of bread and two fish. And the loaves were probably very small, and the fish. Were probably small and dried and salted, and that's what multiplied when Jesus prayed over it and he distributed it to groups of fifty or a hundred in an orderly way. Verse twenty says, "And they were all are they all ate and were satisfied." And the disciples picked up twelve basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. And the word um, "satisfied" means they were filled. They were gutted they had had so much it wasn't quite coming out their noses but they were satiated and the number of those who ate was about 5,000 and of course we know that the numbers were not just uh, men women and children that they uh, well they counted just the men but there was women and children as well and there could have been 10 to 20,000 people there and then later on we'll see that Jesus feeds the 4,000 with seven. Seven baskets are picked back up at that time, and the combining of the numbers there was twenty to 40,000 people that Jesus fed with just a couple of loaves and a couple of fish. And that's pretty amazing uh, that Jesus could do something like that, how the miracle took place. As I talked about, I'm not quite sure, but I think it just multiplied as they broke it. It just kept on breaking and, and expanding. And this shows us that God is concerned with our physical needs. He uses the small things to do great things. If you go up to him and you say, I don't have much. I just have a couple of loaves and fish, it goes perfect. One individual came up to me once, and they're getting into ministry, and this person said to me, you know, I feel so unworthy. And I turned to him and I said, you are. (laughs) and he was like cut to the heart what do you mean i i'm unworthy i said you're so unworthy that's why god can use you 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 recognize your unworthiness but the person who says oh i'm totally worthy to get into ministry that person god cannot use and so god will take us in our brokenness and our failings and he decides to use us he takes the little things the loaves and the fish And he feeds tens of thousands of people. He can take any one of you and me in here, and he can have us reach multitudes if we just simply recognize our position in him. So God's provision, it also goes well beyond what we need. We think that he's just given me manna day by day. The blessings that come along with the physical needs that he provides are just beyond measure. But often we just stop at looking at the physical needs, and that's where it ends for us. We don't look at God and how he provided and the people that he touched around us in order to get us to where we are. If you look at your life and how your life has progressed, I I did this last week and the week before. I, I was just examining my life, where I came from, and how I got here. Because when I look at how I got here, I ask how did i get here what how did i end up doing this and the same thing applies with you guys the people that you met the parents that you had the schools that you went to the hobbies you got involved in the connections that were made all of that all those little things added up to something big and god has brought you into his kingdom most of you i believe in here are saved And because of that, you are going to be blessed for all of eternity. But he used those small things and the provision that he has given you and these little things like your parents and your schooling and all of that have worked together for the big picture. Now, they all wanted, at this particular point, to make Jesus ruler because, after all, he provided them food. Over in the Gospel of John, chapter 6, It says, after the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, surely this is a prophet who has come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. And so we know that when the people saw, this man can give us food, we won't have to work anymore, let's go ahead and make him king, and he can give us food all the time. That's probably what they were looking at. They weren't looking at the spiritual benefit that they could get from him. Now, going back to Matthew, we see here that Jesus dismissed them before he went off to solitary place. He went up on a mountainside to pray by himself, and when evening came, he was alone. But the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. And during the fourth watch of the night, that would be between 3 o'clock in the morning and 6 o'clock in the morning, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. Now, if you recall, there, these winds can come down from the north. They can be 70 miles an hour, gale force winds on this little lake that's only about eight miles across. But there's mountains to the north. And to farther north, up in Lebanon, you have Mount Hermon, which is up there. And you can see it, and it's snow-covered. If you guys have ever been up to Seattle, and if you look towards the east you see this big mountain mount rainier and and it's higher than any other mountain You're sitting in the airport i've been there a couple of times you look at this mountain you, you go that's an oddity that thing is just so huge compared to the rest of the mountains that are out there. Well, there's this Mount Hermon that's like that to the north. If you get up on the the top of the Sea of Galilee there as it goes to the north towards the city of Dan, you look up and you can see Mount Hermon, and oftentimes it's snow-covered. And it is believed that the water from that mountain goes into the ground and comes down and comes up in places like Caesarea Philippi where it comes out of the ground, the water, at 5,000 gallons a second. And that is one of the beginnings of the Jordan River that flows down to the Dead Sea. And so Jesus, He went to by Himself. Up on a mountainside to pray, and he sent the disciples out, and a storm came during the night, the last watch of the night. Now, if you recall, I told you how low this is below sea level. It's about 700 feet below sea level. And so it's a depression there, and it aids the wind coming through. And Jesus started walking towards his disciples. Verse 26 The disciples, when they saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said. And cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Lord, if it is you, Peter said, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, came towards Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink and cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith, he said. Why did you doubt And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Now, remember, the wind instantly got calm. It stopped blowing, and then they just rode to the other side. They are probably three and a half miles into the lake, right in the middle of the lake. Uh, Some kids from the youth group, they just went over to Israel, and they did that. If you go to Israel, that's one of the trips they take you on. They stick you out in this boat that would have been about the equivalent size of the boat that Jesus was in, the fishermen would have used. And they stop in the middle of the lake and you get this view around the lake of what it must have been like. And every time I've been out there, it's been nice and calm. I can't imagine what that place would be like with gale force winds coming through, but a little boat out there on that lake. And again, it's not that big. It could be troubling. And then if you see a guy walking on it, what are you going to think? You're just going to be beside yourself doing that. I recently saw this little video of these tribes that were um, gotten in touch with by a French explorer. And it was a little bit older video and they had only heard about people with white skin and they were called white ghosts. And it shows this video of... These tribesmen, they're, they're holding their arrows out. They're crossing this river because they see this guy's white and his hair is straight. And of course, their hair is real curly and the, he's thinking he's going to get an arrow any second. And this is all being filmed. And when they walked up to this guy to see him because they thought he's a white ghost, if they touched him, they thought, well, he's probably not going to be there if I touch him. And they couldn't trust their own senses. And you would see them reach out and, and, touch but immediately pull away like they were so afraid of what they knew was right in front of them and they thought jesus was a ghost out there on the lake and it it was him but yet they had never seen anything like that they were so taken aback another thing that these tribesmen saw they gave them a mirror and on the mirror they put a leaf it's like a banana leaf on top of it he handed them the mirror and they pulled back the mirror. And as soon as he pulled back the mirror, he, he almost dropped the mirror. He couldn't believe what he was seeing on the inside. Sometimes what we think and what is reality are two different things. And when the disciples saw Jesus coming around there, on, or coming straight towards them on the ocean or on the Sea of Galilee there, they thought something was different. But in fact, it was true. And this is the way we look at God. Sometimes we make up things. We have in our own minds who Jesus is and what he's supposed to do. We have in our minds Jesus meek and mild. We see the depictions of him with red hair looking very Irish, looking up and a light shining on him. We see that. And some of the modern day depictions of Jesus, he's the one that's always wearing white in the crowds. He's the one that's so gentle and wouldn't hurt a fly, and yet he makes a whip. And when he comes back the next time, he's going to be pretty angry. And he's going to judge the people on this earth. And by the way, he got into some good discussions with the Pharisees here. As we'll see, they sent a delegation and they wanted to see Jesus and talk to him about his practices and how they were worthless. And they, they needed to fall in line with what the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees were. And Jesus would have none of it. So it's important that as the disciples saw Jesus coming on the lake, they recognize who he is for what he is. And that's depicted to us in the word. We don't make up things. We don't say Jesus is just a ghost or he's just a spirit. As I was doing this study, I was looking up different things, things like traditions that we hold in the church that aren't scriptural at all. And there's, such a variety of them, and I'll get to some of those in a minute. But one guy was saying, the Holy Spirit is not God. And I go, what are you talking about? People, we, we have a tendency to make things up. We create God in our own image rather than letting God be who he is. And so this, this issue with Jesus walking on the water, it's about trust. And we have a tendency not to trust. Peter reached out and goes, okay, I want to walk on water too. The only two people ever in history that we know of that actually walked on water water with nothing underneath whatsoever. Peter got out there, he stretched out his hand, or Jesus stretched out his hand to him when he doubted, when he didn't know how to have faith. And he thought to himself, I'm going to be in trouble now. But Jesus was right there. And he didn't have to doubt whatsoever. And for us, and by the way, this worked to his benefit because he became a great apostle. Now, he was a blow-it several times, but he was a great apostle, just like the rest of the apostles that were there. And that worked for his benefit. If there are times where we think we're sinking, it's over. It's done. Something bad happens to us. Something happens to us that we don't anticipate. That's life. Adjusting to those things we don't anticipate that come along. We all think that everything's going to be just fine, that we're going to have the job after we go to school, and we're going to have the family, and we're going to have the kids, and we're going to get old and die at a really old age and never have any problems. And it never works out that way. We're always adjusting who we are, and all of those things work for our benefit. For instance, you guys know Romans 8.28, right? Right? All things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. It doesn't say anything about the person who doesn't love God and is not called according to his purpose. Those things don't work out for the people that don't know God for their benefit necessarily. They could work for their detriment. But being in Christ, everything that we go through works for our benefit. Just as Peter was walking on the water and sinking, He learned to trust. We get the application of learning to trust God even in the midst of the storm, even when he calls us to come to him in the midst of the storm. Now the pinnacle here in chapter 14 is verse 33. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him saying, truly you are the son of God. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding counties and our country and people brought all their sick to him and begged him to let the sick just touch the edge of his cloak and all who touched him were healed. And so it's this idea of point of contact. Sometimes we need things in order, things physically to come along to help build our faith. Uh, For instance, when it comes to the gifts of the spirit, Chuck Smith often talked about this. There are churches that do not believe in the gifts of the spirit and churches that do. Those who don't are called cessationists. They believe that the gift of prophecy and the gift of tongues and the gift of interpretation, that was for the New Testament church, and that isn't to take place here today. And there's so many testimonies of things being done like that, these gifts being used in operation, even people being raised from the dead by missionaries who go into a new place to give the gospel. But there's those who don't believe that. And this one woman, she really wanted... Um, a gift from the holy spirit and of course we know the holy spirit is like numa or wind and she was just praying uh i think it was for the gift of tongues she was praying by her bedside and she just wanted to speak in tongues and she didn't have the gift and she felt this instant rush of warm air come over her just and she felt it was the holy spirit and she started speaking in tongues and she was just blessed And then she found out it was the central hair that came on, the heating. And it just blew on. She looked up, oh, wow. But she still got the gift. It's that point of contact, kind of. And he, he describes it like that. And so we come in contact with people. They are the point of contact that also help us with our gifts. For instance, I hope every one of you know what your spiritual gift is. If you know what your spiritual gift is, It's a blessing when you operate in it. Now, not everybody has every gift. For instance, the gift of administration, the gift of helps, the gift of teaching, the gift of pastor, the gift of apostle, the gift of prophet, the gift of evangelist, all of those things. Now, apostles, I don't think are around today, but there's also several gifts that are in operation inside the church. And somebody comes up to you and says, you know, I think you have a gift of encouragement Because you're always encouraging somebody. And it's a point of contact. Nobody ever pointed that out to you before. But if you don't operate in your gift, you're always going to have a lackluster walk with God. If you find what your gift is, and there's several gifts that are listed in three different sections in scripture. If you find what your gift is and you start operating in it, the joy that comes out, the, the motivation that is from the inside, it's, it's like the spirit filling you up and you get to operate in that gift. And when you find what that is, people are blessed and you're blessed. And you, at the end of the day, you go, God, thank you for such a great day. But if you don't use your gift, it's like, ho hum. Oh yeah. I'm going to church again on Sunday. They're going to have donuts and coffee and we're going to talk to a few people and go. And and that's how we look at life. We never dive in feet first. We never get all the way in the pool submerged. We're always just on the edge rubbing our feet in the water as they hang in the pool. Instead of just diving in. I want to encourage you, if you don't know your gift, start on a track. We we have tests that help direct you there, but usually the people around you can tell you what your gift is. If you don't know what what your gift is, if you've been in church, you attend regularly, go up to somebody and say, what do you think my gift is? And if somebody says the gift of gossip, well, that's, that's, that's not a good thing. But, you know, there may be a good gift, like the gift of helps or the gift of craftsmanship, those types of things. Operate in them. Now, when you do, you could end up in a point of exhaustion. Now, sometimes people take on too much. And I'm really sensitive to that. I don't like people to take on too much. But when you operate in your gift, you're full of joy even though you're tired. And you say, wow, Lord, that was great. I'm tired. I'm going to sleep now. But thank you, Lord, for using me in this particular gift. Now, with that gift, a lot of times people operate in their gifts without knowledge. For instance, you know, the book of 1 Corinthians was a book that was an admonishment to the church in Corinth. They were blowing it left and right. They, they were doing things like, well, I'm of Apollos. I'm of Paul. Well, I'm of Cephas. Well, I'm of Jesus, all you people. You know, that's, that's nothing. There was divisions going on in the church. And they were arguing who was better. And then there was this idea of taking each other to court. First Corinthians chapter six talks about that. He goes, are you not defeated already? Big admonishment. Almost a rebuke that's taken place there. Then in marriage, people were dissolving their marriage because I got saved, but my husband did not, or I got saved and my wife did not, so I need to divorce them because, you know, they're unclean. I'm, I'm unequally yoked. And Paul's going, no, stop it, you people. Remain in the place that when you were called, stay married. You don't know if you're going to save this other person over here. Then they came to the gifts. And the the church would all speak in tongues at one time and they thought that was the spiritual gift. And if you didn't, the biggest spiritual gift, and if you weren't speaking in tongues, then you just weren't spiritual. And Paul says, knock it off. You know, if somebody's going to speak in tongues, he goes, two or at the most three should speak in tongues, then there should be an interpretation that was follows. And if there's not an interpretation, let that person hold their tongue and do not speak. Same thing with prophecy, you know, uh, Paul said, I'd rather you speak 10 words prophetically than 10,000 in a tongue. And they were misusing that and they were completely out of order, probably running up and down the aisles and doing things. And First Corinthians chapter 14 says our God is a God of order and the spirit of the prophets is subject to the control of the prophets. Which means there's this idea of being slain in the spirit that some in the church have practiced that, I was so taken over by the Spirit I didn't know what I was doing. And I was jumping up and down in the lectern and running back and forth on the stage and it was just the Spirit of God. No, it was your flesh. That's what it was. And so they were just doing that completely because they didn't have knowledge. They were falling into error. And so we could have a gift and you might think, well this is how I'm supposed to operate in my gift, but the scripture says No, that's not how you operate in your gift. This is how you're supposed to operate in your gift. This is why it's so important that we are in fellowship and we are in the word. We find out what proper doctrine or proper practice is inside the church. If we don't do that, there's error all over the place. You know, like when it comes to gossip. Let me tell you, now I I want you to pray about this. Okay, that's why I'm telling you. I want you to pray about this sister. You know, this sister has a big problem. Let me tell you about this problem. But remember, this is under the covering of prayer. And then you get involved in gossip or murmuring or backbiting. All of those things in Scripture talks about that. they are traditions that we develop. We, we have traditions here in the church, and I'll expand on this a little bit more. What's our tradition? Well, we come in here, I stand up, you sit down. We do some worship songs, and if you stand too long, you probably don't like that, so we all instruct you to go ahead and take a seat. Usually after the first four or five songs, we do that, and we don't receive an offering. We tell you, go ahead and put it in the box, and that's going to be okay. And then at the end, I try to give you guys a blessing. We go over and we sing our final song. Sometimes we have communion. Sometimes we don't. And when it's all said and done, I say, have a blessed week in Christ, right? I say that every single week to you guys, and then you go out and you do what? Donuts, and you go for the donuts, and you go for the coffee, and you drink all that, ha ha ha, and you go home. I mean, that—that that is our tradition. That is what we do. And if I start breaking from that, and I've done that a couple of times, a couple of times we come in here and I give the communion first. <laughs> you should see the sheep. That what are we? The- what the gospel hasn't been given yet. What are you? Do? It's a tradition. You know, we go through this tradition. If we mix things up and, and people, sheeple, sheep, they don't like that so much. You know, you, you got to stick in line. And then the tradition becomes the thing that supplants the scripture and its teaching. And that's where we get in trouble. That's, again, why it's so important that we're involved in fellowship or being complacent, or being apathetic, those things too. You know, God tells us when it comes to our gift, you know what we're supposed to do with that gift? Uh, I, uh, John, I saw John over here, I was driving by, and John was lighting a fire. He had this fire out there, and it was blazing, and guess what he had with it? A backpack blower. And he's sticking that blower, And that flame is just going. I go, cool. This is cool. And don't worry. He had a permit. It was on a cloudy day. It was wonderful. I I just continued. I, I said to myself, he's having a blast. We don't do that with our gift. You should take your gift and consider it like a pile of mulch. Light that thing on fire and get the biggest blower you can and blow the fire towards just raging And then people will come next to you and go, oh, you're so warm. And they'll be blessed by you using your gift. But again, if you don't know how to use it properly, well, there's going to be some issues. That's why we need to be in fellowship and we need to be in the word. Now I'm going to get back to Matthew. So we we have this idea, this point of contact when it comes to a gift. And there are some certainties. God is the one who brings us through the storm when we saw the, the boat and Jesus coming over. And we have a lot of uncertainty when we're going through those storms. We think we're going to drown, so to speak. And, of course, I'm speaking metaphorically. Job was like this, too. Job, we know, was suffering and he had boils. If you remember the story of Job, the boils were from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. And he would sit by a fire and just say, woe is me. And he'd grab broken pottery and scrape the sores that were on his arms and his leg. And it was just a miserable existence. And, of course, this was because Satan was turned loose on him according to the will of God. And in chapter 23, verse 1, Job replied, Even today my complaint is bitter. His hand is heavy in spite of my groaning. If only I knew where to find him, if I, if only I could go to his dwelling, I would state my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would find out what he would answer me and consider what he would say. Would he oppose me with great power? No, he would not press charges against me. Then an upright man could present his case before him. But I would be delivered forever from my judge. But if I go to the east, he is not there. If I go to the west, I do not find him. When he is at work in the north, I do not see him. When he turns to the south, I catch no glimpse of him. And then verse 10, but he knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. And so Job was just in a terrible state, but he knew that the end of the trial would work for his benefit. Now, going on here, this is the ministry of Jesus. He preached, he taught, he healed, he rebuked, he did all of these things. And this is really the breaking point, as I just stated, in his ministry. In chapter 15, in verse 1, Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. How many kids have never washed their hands before they eat? How many of you have never washed your hands before you eat? You just start eating. Well, for them, it wasn't so much cleanliness. It was what their teachers of the law, the rabbis, the priests, the Sadducees, they had come up with this tradition. And they felt that if they didn't wash their hands at least three times, they could get a demon they also felt that if they didn't wash their food they could get a demon and so they're zealous about washing everything this is a spiritual connection now which book of the bible does it say if you don't wash your hands you'll get a demon yeah no second corinthians no it is first speculations right next to first opinions right <clears throat> That's where it is. There is no such verse that says if you eat something with dirty hands, you're going to get a demon. Now, you might get a worm. You might get a virus. You might get something that's bad, but you're not going to get a demon if you eat food with dirty hands. But they thought they made this connection. Well, of course, you're going to get a demon if you don't wash your hands when you eat. Even today, you go to Israel. I've explained this one before. You go to the Western Wall, use the bathroom that's there. There's probably 15 sinks in the one bathroom that's there, and each one has a pitcher by it. And you take the pitcher, and you pour it over your hands this way, and you pour it over your hands that way, and you pour it over your hands this way, and pour it over your hands that way. You might as well just take a bath and a shower all at once to get clean because they are just constantly worrying, even today, about washing correctly. They've kept this tradition since the time of Jesus. And with the food as well. And so they complain that the disciples break the tradition of the elders. They don't wash their hands before they eat. Now, to back up a little bit, how they got these traditions. It comes from when they were in captivity in Babylon. They were taken away. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar took them over there. And that's where the synagogue started. And they would start to meet in like churches, but there were synagogues because they couldn't meet at the temple. And then the rabbis would teach things, and they would develop customs, traditions, and they would pass them down from rabbi to rabbi is what would happen. And these rabbis would come to conclusions, and they ended up going from generation to generation. And at one point, they would take over the actual practice from Scripture, and their traditions were more important than the Scripture's. So they got involved in these rituals. Now, as I stated, the scribes and the Pharisees are very superstitious. Now, are, are you guys superstitious? Have you ever watched ball players? They have the same habits as they get up to the plate. You know, they take maybe three swings like this, and then they hit their cleats. They go this way, and they raise one shoulder, another shoulder, and then they set. And they do the same thing every time they get up. They may have a lucky rabbit's foot. They may spit some chewing tobacco. I, wait, I don't think they can still do that in the MLB. But, you know, they would have these things, routines that they would go through because they were superstitious. They'd think they think they would either speak or bring into existence by their actions these things that would bode ill for them when they got up to the plate. And so that's superstitious Are you superstitious about walking under a ladder, breaking a mirror, crossing the path of a black cat? You know, all of these things. No, don't do that. Don't say it. Don't speak it into the universe. That type of thing. We're superstitious about that. And God doesn't want us to be superstitious about anything because greater is he who's in you than he who's in the world. And these things mean nothing. And so God wants us to rely on the scripture and not be superstitious. Verse 3, Jesus replied, and this is a retort, a rebuke back to them. And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is a gift devoted to God, he is not to honor his father with it. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. Let me explain what's going on here. A young man would gather some wealth. He would have some articles that were of worth and he'd put them in his house and instead of selling those things to take care of his parents, he would say, no, that's a gift devoted to God. It's not that they would give it to the temple. It was a ruse so that they could keep the wealth that they had accumulated. And they would set it apart in their house. They said, no, this is a gift devoted to God. And they just wanted to accumulate wealth without helping their parents, is what they would do. And Jesus said, you call these things, these, this Corbin is what it's called, a gift devoted to God, and you won't help your parents, which violates which commandment? You guys know which one? Number five. of the Ten Commandments? honor your father and mother that word honor it means take care of them whatever they say whatever they need you take care of them why because they gave you life they chose to bring you into the world and because of that they're to be respected and by the way just as in the asian countries the parents are greatly respected the same thing was true in the jewish community especially at this time you honored your parents but the pharisees and the sadducees were teaching you can keep this you know it's okay it's yours you know keep it and they would commit a grave a grievous error and not taking care of their pain, their parents and so jesus calls it calls these guys now remember this is a delegation that came from jerusalem showed up say hey we have a problem with your disciples they don't wash their hands before they eat oh yeah what about you guys it didn't even address the objection with them he just said, you hypocrites. And he goes on and gives them several woes. Woe to you. It is not going to bode well. And so these false teachings would spread about what Jesus was doing and and the Jerusalem, the delegation, they found out about that. They showed up. The rabbinic traditions were taking precedent over the Mosaic traditions. And the Leaders took offense that Jesus wasn't falling in line with who they think he should have been and what he should have been teaching. And so Jesus calls them on it and says, you are nullifying God's word. Nullifying means you're making it worthless. You're making it futile. You're making it where it doesn't mean anything whatsoever. It is without result. You're putting these traditions over what God says to do. And so this religious emphasis is outward at this point with the pharisees and sadducees where jesus was focusing on the inside the heart now which of us can perfect our outside when i look in the mirror i said i need to perfect that a little bit and we do what we can you know if i look in the mirror this way i need to perfect that a little bit and i do that and guess what happens it still falls into disarray. You know, some hamburgers are there and chocolate and, oh, I got to work at this again. I'm constantly trying to perfect myself, you know, and it doesn't work. And the more I try, the worse it gets. The older I get, the creakier I get, all of those things. Why can't, let me take these pills to make it better. I will be young. Have you heard about that new A supplement which is out there, limitless, if you take that, your brain is going to be just like in the movie. You're going to be so smart. No, my brain's slowing down. I can feel my brain slowing down as I get older. And nothing can be perfected. And yet the Jews were trying to perfect the outward man. And Jesus goes, no, it's inside that has to be perfected. And he goes on to talk about this and how it's not the outside that needs to be perfected but it is the inside but this tradition over exposition leads to deception so they'd have this tradition that they would set up and they would say forget about the exposition of the scriptures to see what it says but if you don't do that it leads to deception just like the use of the gifts of the spirit if you don't do some expository study or listen to, to some expository teaching on the use of the gifts, it falls into error or deception on the way these things are supposed to be used. Now, how do you do this? Well, first let me go to verse 7. It says, you hypocrites, by the way. Jesus called the Pharisees hypocrites 23 times in the Gospels, which means actors. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. So, and, and this is happening in the church today, where they don't look at the scriptures, they just make things up. Remember the thing I told you a couple months ago, grave sucking? Remember that? Where you go to a, a grave as somebody who is a spiritual giant, quote unquote, in the past, and you, you lay prostrate on the grave and the spirit that's wasting away in the grave you get some of it where is that again it's probably second opinions that you find that in the scripture it's nowhere in the scripture to do that kind of thing god matter of fact that would be more occultish than it would be anything that would be scriptural and so how how do you do this how do you find out what is right what traditions do we hold to as i told you we have several traditions here what traditions do you hold to do you rely on experience? Remember uh, when I was in seminary, I told you about this, Dr. Donald Thorson, my most favorite teacher that was in seminary. He wrote this book uh, that dealt with, he called it the Wesleyan quadrilateral. It's a name of book. He wrote the book. And he said, and you've heard me say this before, there's four things that we use to determine what our practice is inside the church as Christians and also in life. There's scripture, there's reason, there's tradition, and experience. Now, we all use all four, but which one is first? For instance, tradition. What church says tradition trumps everything? It's the Catholic Church. You go to the Catholic Church, and they have their traditions, which are there. And we have our traditions, but They have theirs, Stations of the Cross, you know, and Lutheran Church, you go there and their altar has five crosses on it, one on each corner, one right in the middle, and that's to remind of the piercings that Jesus received in his hands, in his feet, and in his side. And they they have these traditions, and it's not really a good Lutheran church or Reformed church unless you have that. Now, in the Reformed tradition, the thing that they usually put on top, not always, but usually, is reason reason trumps scripture here at calvary chapel i like to think we use the scripture and second is reason now there's some points in which you arrive at the scripture and you go well i'm not quite sure so what do we do we reason through the scriptures we find out what the scriptures have to say about a particular subject we reason through it and then we're left with experience and tradition normally as a calvary chapel we will look back well what has calvary chapel taught as a tradition on this particular subject we look at that some Calvaries do that others well what have you experienced now what church relies on experience the assemblies of god they rely on experience for instance in an assembly of god you might see everybody speaking in tongues now by the way All these churches, I believe they're brothers and sisters. Just like in this church are all saved. Well, I don't know. In the Catholic church are all saved. Well, I don't know. In the Lutheran church and the assemblies of God, I don't know if they're all saved or not saved. Let God sort that out. But we all use these four things. And so we have to determine well, which is it the the Pharisees and the Sadducees they got involved in their traditions, and they weren 't looking at the scripture, and tradition took precedent over everything and then, after that, it was probably experience well, what did the rabbis do, and they looked to the rabbis what the rabbis did, and then they had go to the scripture or to reason it 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 was kind of backwards, and God says he places his word. Above everything, even his name, or it's equal to his name. That's the one we're supposed to go to. And so if you have an issue with something, if you think you're falling into a tradition that you shouldn't, look to the scripture. What does the scripture have to say about it? Remember, it's the outward that people were getting involved in and not the inward. They weren't looking inside. The world thinks, I'm a good person. No, you're not, according to scripture. You're not a good person. Matter of fact, you're even harmful to yourself and everyone around you. But scripture says it's okay, there's good news. You can be useful to God in his hand if you're simply submissive to him. So you see the problem that the Pharisees and the Sadducees fell into? They wanted to perfect the outside, just what they did. If they did the right thing, everything will be good. And by the way, that's most of Christianity today. It's not this idea that on the inside we're broken and we say, God, I'm a sinner and I there's no remedy for me and god goes good i know i'm the remedy for you for me he's the one that's what god wants to perfect now it won't be perfected this side of heaven we just do what we can and we continue on we walk and we abide in christ until the very end when he calls us home and if we do that we're doing good but we want to make sure we don't get involved in holding up traditions other traditions for instance, are there certain churches that require you to dress a certain way? Yes. You bet there are. Well, I, at one time, I, uh, it was early on in the church, I wore a tie just to wear a tie once. And it wasn't Easter. It wasn't Christmas. I wore this tie. And a guy came up to me. He was on the ushering team, and he said, Oh, you're wearing a tie to honor the gospel? I know. I'm wearing a tie because I want to wear a tie. I'm not wearing a tie because I want to honor the gospel to show everybody that I'm honoring the gospel. You know how they used to give out ribbons? Awareness. You know, a red ribbon, a white ribbon. I'm aware. Wear what? <laughs> That's the point. See, I'm, I'm thinking about it, so I'm good. So we have these symbols that we put on our bodies or we tattoo on our bodies. I am aware. God doesn't want you to be aware of stuff on the outside. He wants you to be aware of stuff on the inside. And when I say he wants you, I'm talking to myself here as well. He wants the inside perfected. Or what about music? The same um, teacher that I was, uh, the doctor that I was very impressed with in seminary, his wife didn't feel she was in a church unless there was an organ and a choir. It just wasn't church. And, and, but that's her tradition. And it's okay. It's not scriptural. But then there's the others that have the contemporary. And if you have the contemporary service, where are the hymns? Well, we might do a hymn today. We might not. It doesn't matter. And there's so many people we get stuck in the mud. It's not church without hymns. Well, the others would say, it's not church without a guitar. I can remember selling papers at a Catholic church when I was real young and they introduced the guitar and it was just like, no, a guitar, six strings as opposed to 88 on a keyboard or an organ. How can you do sacrilege? And they would just get all upset about that stuff. We have these traditions. Let's stick to tradition. No, let's not. What if we, instead of having donuts, we serve Broccoli? You know, what happened? No, (laughs) shaking your head. No, 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 no. This is not going to go well. What if we did stuff? What if we just shook it up a little bit? And we get so upset and God wants to take all of our traditions, not that we can't practice them, but he wants to regulate them to the circular file because they're passing away. They're not going to be here. But on the inside, he wants that transformed. That's why the exercise of our mind with our soul has benefit not only for this life but for the life to come but everything else here i don't care how much iron you pump you know kickboxing yeah oh, it's getting to why your body's going to decay how many people have you seen that are 80 years old at the kickboxing place none i you go over to here to one of the sports plays and you see everybody 30 years old oh, i'm so fit you know and and everybody else, the rest of us are going, oh, I can't, I can I got walking, it's just destroying on the outside. God wants the inside transformed, and that is why He rebuked these Pharisees and the Sadducees. And Jesus goes on, He called the crowd to Him and said, Verse 10, listen and understand what goes into a man's mouth does not make him unclean, but what comes out of his mouth, that is what makes him unclean. Then the disciples came to him and asked, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? He replied, every plant that my heavenly father, as not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them. They are blind guides. If a blind man leads a man or a blind man, both will fall into a pit. And so he he didn't have enough bad things to say about these guys. He he was probably speaking on for about 10 minutes. I'm, I'm just adding to the scripture here. But I'm sure he gave them some more on top of that saying, These people are worthless is who they are. So the warning for us, and we'll close at this point, the warning for us is take any tradition that you have and be willing to sacrifice it in place of the scripture. Do not be like the Pharisees and the Sadducees that say this tradition must hold. Again, Easter. Who had ham on Easter? So did I. Why? It's tradition. Ham on Easter. You know, and for us, it's prime rib on Christmas. That's what we have. It's tradition. But what if I mix it up one time? What will the family say? Oh, sacrilege! You see what I'm saying? Anything that you have that's sort of a tradition, just let it go by the wayside. You don't have to totally sacrifice it, but know its place. Don't fall into the error of thinking things should be this way, unless you can go to the Scripture, and the Scripture says. This is what you ought to do. And we'll follow the scripture. May God give you the grace to see these things, to understand them fully, that we will not fall into the error of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And by God's grace, we'll do so. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, how it it just enlightens how we're to live this life, both in the church and outside. We ask that you would help us to soften our views but to harden them if they're in your word and to stick to that and defend it. Give us the wisdom, the knowledge, the time to endure, Lord. Endure in your scriptures and with each other. Help us as men, or iron sharpens iron, may men sharpen men and women sharpen women. We ask for your help in this, Lord, that we may not fall into error so that we may be presented to you as a spotless church. We thank you, Lord, for your instruction and your guidance in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.